Now I'll ask you, if you will, to turn to Romans chapter 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1. I want to say thank you to many of you who have contacted me during the week and have let me know that you've been praying uh, about this morning. It's a topic of immense importance and uh, it needs to be handled well and compassionately. And so I appreciate the prayers. I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 1, which will come across as a very hard passage to begin with and uh, then I'll try to place it in a little bit of context and then we'll move forward from there but I'll ask you if you will if you're physically able to stand as we read from Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse 18 through the rest of the chapter For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. I'm sorry, I want to begin at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, of, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I'll ask you to pray with me. Lord, at this time on a Sunday morning, we turn our attention to your word. Sometimes it encourages us, 
Sometimes it convicts us. But you always bring it to bear on our lives. Not as some theory or some philosophical something or other that we grab hold of, but you apply it to us personally and all the way through. And so, Lord, this morning I ask that you would help us as I speak to speak with the compassion of Christ, to speak with the wisdom that the Spirit gives. And I pray then as people listen that their hearts would be listening at attention to your word. I pray that you would grant them wisdom to throw out what might be chaff and to hold on to what is good. But at the end of the day, I pray that you would help us to see your grace and your mercy and your kindness towards people. And so, Lord, I ask that the going forth of your word, the preaching of your word, would have its due effect. And thank you that we can depend on you and not on ourselves. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our topic this morning will be a difficult one, and it will be impossible for me to say everything that could be said, or maybe even everything that needs to be said about this particular issue. And if I were addressing it, if I were standing in a class at UNCW and talking about this issue, I would approach it differently. Well, I hope that we would land at the same spot, but I would certainly take a different starting off point. But we are in a place of worship, and we do look to God's Word as our central, central place for where truth is, and we hold to it as true. And so I hope that as we make our way through this morning, it will become plain uh, what God's Word says about homosexuality and how it addresses, in a secondary sense, transgenderism and how we ought to interact with people who, who may be struggling in that regard. In his Templeton Prize lecture on May 18th, or May 10th, 1983, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who you may have heard of, he was a political prisoner in Russia for a period of time, but later immigrated to the West. When he gave this lecture at Harvard, he diagnosed the tragedies of Russia. And he said this as part of his speech. More than a half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revelation that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. I want to begin this morning by starting with the end in mind. And that is where the, the hope of the gospel. We can't be fair to the heaviness of the verses that we just read unless we know where the verses are leading us. So I'm going to begin with the conclusion so that everyone understands that the aim of God's judgment is to lead to God's grace. Romans, the book of Romans, is a long treatise. And we do ourselves a disservice if we just pick up a portion of it and only read a portion at a time. But in this long treatise, in this long letter, Paul presents arguments and counter-arguments as he endeavors to show how much God loves sinners and how much sinners need Jesus. 
And if we grab only a few verses from the end of chapter 1, as so many have, then we will leave jaded and we will end up with a wrong view of God and with a wrong view of ourselves. Paul's long argument that he makes across the course of the first eight chapters of the, of the book of Romans, if I can move as quickly to his conclusion, allows us to see that despite what we have done and because of what God has done, there is some very good news. The Bible word for good news is gospel. And the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus can take any sinner, regardless of their past, and he can pay for their sins. And when people trust that God has said to them, or that when people trust what God has said to them and what Jesus has done for them, there are some very specific results, and they form the conclusion of Paul's argument. There are more of them than I could point out, but three will be sufficient to make the point for us this morning. If we, were to read to the, if we were to read to the end of what Paul is discussing and we reach some of his conclusions, we would find our way to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 where it says there that we have peace with God. So whatever it says in the way of judgment in chapter 1, judgment does not have to have the final word on people. Through Jesus, we can have peace with God. The second conclusion is at the end of Romans chapter 5 at verse 20 in which it says this, where, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. However deeply we've walked in the sins of chapter 1 or chapter 2 of Romans, there is something else that is at work in the book of Romans that outpaces how fast and how deep people sink into sin. God in His love, God in His grace, Loves, so loves sinners that he walks through the muddiness of any kind of sin to put people on his back and to carry them to safety. We could say it this way. Sin arches, but grace overarches. Sin abounds, but grace superabounds. Sin conquers, but grace super conquers. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. A third point is in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where it says this, There is, therefore, in light of everything that has come before, there is, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Any who believe in Jesus find that the ugliness of their sin cannot cling to them when they are wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. There is no condemnation, none whatsoever, to those who are in Christ Jesus. If we had sufficient time, we could bask in those promises a little bit longer or many other promises that we would find ourselves in in Romans 5 through 8 particularly. Almost anywhere that you drill down in Romans chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, you're going to open up an artesian well of God's kindness towards sinners. And it's almost as if God is so glad, so happy, so delighted to assuage his wrath with his righteousness that he cannot help but celebrate that he is turning stained sinners into clean saints. And this is the conclusion that follows after Romans chapter 1. And if we only read Romans chapter 1, we're going to get the wrong view, so we have to make our way all the way to the end. We'll, make, we'll return to this later on this morning, but we'll never understand what Paul says in Romans 1 unless we understand that Romans 1 is part of the runway at the destination that allows us to finally land in Romans chapter 5 through 8. Romans 1, it's incredibly important. 
But it's not the intended destination, it's simply the starting point. So having laid a little bit of groundwork for where we're headed, I, I want to address the problem that we see. So when Paul begins to write to the people in Rome, he's writing primarily to Jews who are in Rome. But he's also writing to Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish. And the Jews to whom he was writing thought of themselves as better than the Gentiles. And the Jewish readers had a strong streak of self-righteousness in them. So when Paul addresses the Gentiles in chapter 1, the Jewish readers are getting on board with Paul. They piled on. They're, they're amening the judgment of the Gentiles. But as soon as Paul finishes describing the unrighteousness of the Gentiles in chapter 1, he turns his attention then to the self-righteousness of the Jews in chapter 2. These Jews have not engorged themselves on unrighteousness, but they have fattened themselves on self-righteousness. And just at the moment when they're getting ready to pile on to the practitioners of unrighteousness, Paul roundly re reprimands them for their self-righteousness. So if you're reading the book of, of Romans at chapter 1, he addresses these Gentiles who have lived in unrighteousness. In chapter 2, he addresses the Jews who have lived in their self-righteousness. And when you get to chapter 3, he's declaring that the whole world is guilty before God. And he says things like, there is none righteous, no, not one. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone needs the righteousness that God provides in Jesus. And this progression is helpful for us. Because we need to recognize that we all hate some sins. And we tend to embrace other sins. And when we read about the sins in chapter 1... To some of us, those sins will be odious. But to others of us, maybe these sins don't seem so bad. But if we read further in chapter 2, we might find the opposite. That we're personally drawn to the sins of self-righteousness instead of the ones in chapter 1. All that is to say that we need to deal with any sort of sin as Paul does in 1 Timothy where he says to us that some people are caught in certain sins because they've been trapped by the devil and are unknowingly following his bidding. All of us have a strong propensity to carpet bomb people about the sins that we don't commit ourselves. There's something inside of us that raises ourselves up to a different level than other people if they, don't commit, if they commit sins that we ourselves don't commit or in fact maybe don't like. But biblically, we're required to consider ourselves also, our frailty, our weakness, our propensity towards our preferred sin. And consequently, when it comes to this or any other issue, we should address it with tender-hearted compassion in almost every circumstance, but particularly so when we're dealing with individuals. I think in some measure, if we don't address sin with tears in our eyes, we've probably forfeited our right to address sin. But why are we discussing this today? We've taken six weeks to address particular topics. And this is one of the six that we felt was necessary to address. And so I give to you some words from Martin Luther, the German reformer, the 16th century. He says this, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition... Every portion of the truth of God 
except precisely that little point which the world and the devil at the, are at the moment attacking. I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield everywhere else is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. We cannot as a church and we cannot as believers skirt around the issues of our day, leave them unaddressed, and leave people bereft of hope. The subject of homosexuality and transgenderism is without a doubt one of the precise points where the world and the devil are attacking at the moment. The church is unfaithful to its duty if it does not address it, and the church abandons its mission if it falls short of what Scripture says. Regardless of how society feels, God has addressed the issue, and as I said, if the church remains silent, it will leave people bereft of hope, adrift on a churning sea with no lighthouse that will beckon people to a safe harbor. So part of what is addressed in Romans chapter 1 is the issue of homosexuality and, and, and by extension, transgenderism. So we would define homosexuality as uh, attraction to the same sex. Transgenderism is a version of homosexuality that assumes that someone has been wrong in a wrong body. So homosexuality re retains the sex, the male or the female, but addresses the desires of the male or the female. Transgenderism, on the other hand, attempts to separate assigned birth from perceived gender identity so that, in effect, a man could be born a man but think of themselves as a woman or vice versa. I think it's helpful for us to recognize that these are not new sins. Technology has allowed transgenderism to take on a more significant consequence, but they're not new sins. And for whatever reasons, affluent cultures in the West have chosen to pursue homosexuality and transgenderism as in, in the perceived way, just freeing way for, for some people to live their lives. And it occurs in such a way that any caution or disagreement is immediately met with charges of insensitivity and bigotry. And that disagreement is assumed to be the result of someone being backwards or, or maybe just ignorant or hopelessly out of touch with modern advances. This progression has happened at such a rapid pace that I, I really don't even know if it's possible for people, say, under the age of 40 to, to recognize how quickly this understanding of sexuality has been accepted. What that means, then, is that the, the underpinnings have been gone for a long time. We're just seeing the results of the underpinnings being jettisoned decades and decades ago. According to a Barna poll, 39% of 18 to 24-year-olds now identify as LGBTQ. That's a significant percentage. I don't, I don't know if the numbers are accurate. I, I didn't dive into the poll to, to look at the science behind it. But the Gallup poll puts the number at 20%. So whether the number is 20% or 30%, whatever the number is, is five times higher than when I was a young man. And it's increasing at a rapid pace. 
According to the Gallup poll, transgenderism and homosexuality has doubled in the last five years. Now think about the impact that that swell in numbers has on our current generation. That makes this topic difficult to discuss because in some ways I'm addressing two different audiences here this morning. On the one hand, there's a, a generation of mostly older people who find this a completely bizarre reality because it has moved so rapidly that we hardly have categories for it. And in fact, if you were of my generation and older and maybe the generation behind me, you hardly addressed these issues because they seemed so plain on the face of it that it didn't seem that it needed to be addressed. But on the other hand, the younger generation may find that this is not at all odd. This, this is the atmosphere that they are growing up in. And they may not understand what is wrong with it. And if Twitter can be trusted, many people, and particularly the young, find any kind of resistance to personal expression, but especially as it relates to sexuality, as the most reprehensible imposition of all. It's not surprising to me that some may have been caught by the rising tide of cultural experience and, and as a result, assume that homosexuality and transgenderism are normal. It's quite likely, given those poll numbers, that some in the audience today struggle with same-sex attraction. Some who feel outside of the mainstream of society and which kid and which of us that sometimes didn't feel that way but finding themselves outside of the mainstream of society or what they perceive to be the main, mainstream of society, they may wonder if they might be homosexual or transgender. And if at the precise moment of awkwardness trying to find our identity in this world, if transgenderism is offered as an explanation and championed as a viable way of life, then of course some kids will latch onto it as an identification. And when you add to that popularity, of declaring oneself homosexual or transgender at this point, and you add to that the push from authorities towards that way of life, and you add to that the natural rebellion of kids, and there's a recipe for many choosing a path without any serious reflection on what is biblical or what is true or even what is beneficial. And I'd be remiss if I did not say this is further complicated by the approach of our government. The current state of our culture has led to the federal government turning its subject to this, uh, turning its attention to this subject. I read this from WhiteHouse.gov, the official uh, website of the uh, of, of the White House. The name of the article is a fact sheet, and the name of it is Biden Harris Administration Advances Equality and Visibility for Transgender Americans. Here is what it says in part. The executive, this executive order is one of the most consequential policies for LGBTQ plus Americans ever signed by a U.S. president. As a result of that order, the Departments of Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, Education, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the Department of Justice have announced that they are expanding non-discrimination protections for transgender people in healthcare, housing, education, 
credit and lending services, and community safety programs. Well, what does this mean? And what does this mean for the church? And what does this mean for believers? Well, in part, it means that the full weight of the U.S. government is thrown behind normalizing gender dysphoria. So that there are five departments that were mentioned here, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Department of Education, the Department of Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the Department of Justice that are engaged in pushing forward, moving forward this idea. And frankly, this places a biblically faithful church in direct opposition to government policy. Now, how do these things play out? Well, it's still being worked out. It's, it's not law per se, it's policy. But the Department of Health and Human Services in one of its articles says this, a safe and affirming healthcare environment is critical in fostering better outcomes for transgender, non-binary, and other gender expansive children and adolescents. So the application of the Department of Health and Human Services is a policy that requires safe and affirming health care. And part of what is defined as safe and affirming health care uh, is that anyone who speaks against transgenderism is not providing safe and affirming health care. You can move forward to some other things. Department of Education, Title IX, that many of you will be familiar with in the, in the sports world, is, is pushing this agenda as well. Just recently, a high school volleyball team of girls in Vermont was banned from their locker room because a male who insists that he is a female wants to be in the locker room with the girls. So when the girls objected, they were banned. If you've had your mind on your eye on the news the last few months, you have seen that medical facilities such as Vanderbilt University, the Boston Children's Hospital, and others have been performing irreversible hysterectomies and mastectomies and gender reassignment on minors as young as 13 years old. All of this in the name of acceptance because to oppose these life-altering operations is, according to policy, neither safe nor affirming. Just over a month ago, August 20th, 2022, the Washington Post reported a federal judge ruled that teachers do not have to inform parents about their child struggling with gender identity if it is thought that the parents may try to talk their children out of identifying as homosexual or transgender. Acceptance is the only way, and parents are being bypassed and even purposefully left out of the conversations. So the state, the government, is usurping the authority of parents under the assumption that it is more important for impressionable children to be free to declare their sexuality than it is for parents to be involved in the lives of their children. I just want to clarify. Now, while I advocate for the general interaction with individuals who struggle with same-sex attraction, I also recognize and acknowledge that there are times for thundering prophets to boldly confront a society that is mowing down children with an agenda that sexualizes them. 
Our children should not be sacrificed on the altar of an agenda that ignores God, excludes parents, and mars children. There are, in fact, evil people in the world who not only sin and enjoy the sin, but are, who are intent on dragging down everyone else with them. It is these kind of people who the church must steadfastly resist and say quite plainly and boldly, here we stand and we can do nothing else. So we have to ask the question, how did we get here? What has transpired? The verses that we read clearly paint a picture of a culture in demise. It's not necessarily tracking the life of an individual, and not everyone who is transgender or homosexual follows every step that we find in Romans chapter 1, but it is giving us a broad understanding of what happens to a culture that turns its back on God and begins to embrace these kinds of sins. It's obvious that actions, the actions of people lead to results. Forgetting God leads people to be subject to the voraciousness of sin, the hunger of sin to destroy. Sin begins its destructive work. And as we see in Romans chapter 1, we'll look at in just a moment, God steps back and he allows this sin to take its natural course. And God refrains himself from intervening. And when God steps back, man will unman himself, doing everything that he can to remove the marks of a creator. Man assumes that he has escaped accountability, but he runs headlong into destruction. And so in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, I'll not take the time to read it again, but you will have seen it as we read through. The theme is primarily about the willful ignoring of the knowledge of God. The unrighteous, those who practice these sins, are categorized as suppressing the truth. They do so by their unrighteous acts, and they willfully ignore what is plainly clear concerning the nature of God's eternal power and His divine nature, it says in verses 19 and 20. If there is a powerful God that created us, then our behavior is to be shaped by His character. But because people want to act contrary to the Creator, they're compelled to invent another belief about Him. And so what has happened is the underpins have been taken away, not just in, in the secular world, but often too frequently in the church. For years we have been told that God either does not exist or He does not matter. What is truly important is how we feel about a thing. Anything that imposes on what we feel is the chief, uh, chief evil, and we're accountable to no one except ourselves. So to believe this, we've had to deny God's claim on our lives. And whether we redefine God as we want Him to be, or we do away with Him altogether, when there is no God, there is no base for doing what is, what is good for man. A person who's has set himself to intentionally deny the truth of the Creator, finds himself at some point at odds with himself. With himself. He knows, but he cannot acknowledge what is clearly before him. He places himself in a situation that does not allow him to admit, to admit what he knows to be true. And that is why this week at a congressional hearing, a representative from Planned Parenthood answered as he did. When asked if men could become pregnant, he responded by saying men can have pregnancies, especially trans men. 
The ultimate consequence of denying a creator is confusion. Regardless of what we may profess, proclaiming themselves to be wise, we have no way to achieve any kind of moral clarity. Removing the foundation of clear thinking, we can only arrive at muddled morality. So what happens then is when we do away with God and His mandates or redefine God in such a way that He allows whatever we choose to do, not only do we lose our way, but we lose ourselves. The biblical teaching is that men and women are made in God's image. But when we try to do away with God, we end up becoming no more than animals. There is no spark of specialness to us. There's no weight of glory to us. There's no eternal significance to us. We become slaves to our passions and we lose any sense of a calling to a higher and better self. And the fallout is that people lose their way. They have no stabilizing identity and they bounce back and forth between what captures them at the moment, tossed between pillar and post, lost amidst, lost amidst a sea of inconsequential blandness. The truth is we cannot un-God God without at the same time unmanning man. Willfully turning away from what we know to be true leads us to exchange God's glory from the, for an image and the, God's truth for a lie. That's what we see at verse 23. I would just throw your attention there for just a moment. The very first part of verse 23 says that they exchanged the glory of God for other things. And then at verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then at verse 26, for the women and men exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. The exchange starts with exchanging the true God for false gods and exchanging the truth for deception, but it inevitably leads to exchanging God's design. And so both men and women rejecting God also reject themselves. And they ignore what is clearly natural for what is clearly unnatural. So sin brings darkness, and people begin to prefer the lies that they want to the truth that they know. And in time, their minds are confused. And they run past the knowledge of God's righteous deeds. And they commit deeds and approve others who share in them. So what happens is, and I point this out at verse 24, it says that God gave them up. And then verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. And then at verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Sin completes its mission by bringing destruction. The reasons stack up for this reason. God gave them up for this reason. God gave them up for this reason. God gave them up. And it compounds the weight of this intentional rejection of truth. So the conscience is, is seared. Moral reasoning is ignored. Nature is debunked. And in the end, there's little that runs free, free except the ravages of sensuality running free. It's not in this text that God permanently abandons people, although He'll do that if that's what they choose. But what He does do is allows the delusion to run its full course so that they will return to Him. That is His desire, that is His hope, that is His plan. There's a destructive nature to forgetting God. As Solzhenitsyn said, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. 
Once God is gone, or once God is redefined, there's no real reason to stop any kind of behavior. Sensuality of all types can just simply run unimpeded. But we see in this text, and we see in the, in the world around us, that sensuality will never remain simply sensuality. The only way for sensuality to run truly unimpeded is for it to become antisocial. And here's what I mean. Verses 26 and 27 talk about the affections and, and, and the affections that were turned aside. But what it devolves to is in verse 29 where it says they were filled uh, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. And on it goes. Eventually, if there is no God or God's ways to control the, 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 the direction of sensuality, affection will end up turning to aggression. Unimpeded sensuality takes advantage of everyone around. Without God, each individual is a God to themselves. Each individual assumes that everyone is their servant. And so I can beckon you to do what I wish. And if you do not do what I wish, I can bring forth some sort of a violence to, to induce you to do what I wish. In the chaos that erupts, only violence can ultimately prevail. And while, as I said earlier, these verses don't indicate that each individual goes this way, societies that reject God eventually do. What started as unfettered pursuits of sensuality eventually turn into murder and mayhem because I will have what is mine and nothing will stand in my way and I will mow you down if I need to in order to get what I want. Denying God as he is leads to confused thinking. In the confused thinking, man turns the intentions of the creator upside down. Glory is changed for futility. Truth is exchanged for a lie. The natural is traded for the unnatural. And the end of that confusion finds its logical conclusion in taking what God has made glorious, mankind, humanity, taking what God has made glorious and misusing it or destroying it. Rejecting God means expunging every vestige of him. Not only must God be deleted, but so must his image bearers. The undoing of natural humanity, man is man and woman is woman in transgenderism, is the logical consequence of the final rejection of God in a society. God is ungodded. Man is unmanned. God is gone. And man is lost. But beneath all of this remains a yearning in everyone to have worth and dignity. Man made in the image of God, men and women made in the image of God, however badly marred, still yearn for wholeness. Even if they can't name it, and even if they don't recognize it, they yearn for it. And so we return then to the hope of the gospel. The Old Testament prophets, and Paul here in Romans chapter 1, function like the label warnings on our poison. If you continue to contemplate drinking the poison, it will not go well for you. The warnings sound harsh until we see the alternative. The warning might sound like judgment, but if we actually take the poison, what happens then is worse. So God, in His mercy, works hard to get our attention. 
We are sometimes so content with where we are that we don't take time to reflect on this truth, but we compound our sin by our nonchalant, uh, nonchalance in our disobedience. But God continues to sound the warning. And what he does through his prophets and what he did here in Romans chapter 1 is he paints harsh pictures for us in order to arouse us to be awake. It's far better that God explain to us what will happen than for him to be silent about the pain that comes after consuming the poison. So God points out for us in harsh and ugly tones what happens to those who ignore him and embrace sin at their own peril. But God doesn't delight in being harsh. His aim is always restoration. And his mercy is always ready to raise up, repair, and restore repentant hearts. The megaphone of the prophets and the megaphone of Paul is designed to help us wake up to the truth. The one who loves us the most warns us the strongest. The one who loves us the most warns us the strongest. And if we put down the poison, he is ready to forgive. We're wise to heed God's warnings. God's mercy lurks inside the threats of judgment. And the thundering of judgment ceases as soon as we lay hold of God's grace. I don't know if there's a good way to extricate ourselves out of the message this morning, but let me leave you with three questions to consider. How do we deal with people who are struggling with their gender? My surmise is, is that this will happen more and more as the days advance. But how do we do that? Well, we talk to them just as we would with anyone who's struggling with their identity. We should remind them, reinforce for them, that they are made in the image of God. That they've been uniquely designed by the God who makes no mistakes. And they're not slaves to what they feel. People aren't worthless because they feel worthless. Truth has to prevail over their thoughts about their worthlessness. People are not male or female because they feel a certain way. God has made them male or female. And there is no distinction between gender, perceived gender identity, and sex. God made no mistakes when he created us. Truth must prevail over their thoughts. Whatever struggles they might feel, God's design is best. And so we reaffirm for them that God has done a good thing in creating them. And that God has made them specifically and uniquely as he has made them. Number two, how do we deal with society that is barreling towards an agenda that will ultimately destroy people? We have to be strong in truth. Not abrasive, as so many have done, but strong. The narrative of a creator has been deemed unsophisticated. But if the book of Romans is to be believed, people have to intentionally ignore the truth of a creator. So appeal to what they know. You didn't just pop up into the universe. There was a creator, a designer that was behind all of this. And since there is a creator, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God made no mistakes in his creating. Men are men and women are women because they are di- they've been designed that way. And human flourishing, an important concept in our world, human flourishing occurs when we do not accept a false division between gender and sex. 
I would say here as well that we should be gentle in our approach to this, but the, the push from transgenders, transgenders to use particular pronouns likely places many of you in a difficult position, depending on where you work, depending on where you go to school, depending on who you interact with. I don't have chapter and verse from this from the Bible, but I leave it to you for your consideration. That a homosexual individual as it says, I'm a male and I like men, or I'm a female and I like females, I disagree strongly with them. But I can accept what they say is true. They may, in fact, feel that way. When someone transgender asks me to call them by a masculine pronoun when they are in fact female, it creates a crisis of truth. Because it's not accurate. And so I leave with you the, the, the consideration that if we're going to be truthful, we do in fact have to speak the truth. Now, I think I would go way out of my way to not use any pronouns at all because my aim is not to offend people. But if I'm pushed into a corner, I can't embrace a lie, no matter how good it makes someone feel. Thirdly, how do we deal with people who have been homosexual or transgender or who uh, have had those kinds of feelings and it, in, in some ways it's simple it, we deal with them in the same way that we deal with sins of pride or sins of greed or sins of covetousness there's no caste system of sins in which certain sins are only partially forgiven the effectiveness of the cross and the effectiveness of the resurrection are not stunted in any regard it is sufficient for all sins. And what we mean by all sins is all and every sin. Nothing, nothing in all the universe trumps the forgiveness of God. Nothing stands more monumental in all of history than the cross of Calvary, by which God beckons to the world, inviting us to find His mercy. And it is from that place that He calls all of us to taste of His grace and to enjoy His forgiveness. So I'll conclude by reading from Isaiah chapter 55 in which God says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, those of you who are parched, whose souls have been dried out by the pursuit of sin, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And to the one who has no money, you've got nothing left, there's nothing in your soul that you can conjure up to bring to God, that kind of person the one who has no money, come, God says, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, buy what is good. Buy it without money and without price. Why do you keep on spending your money for what is not bread, what will not satisfy? And why do you keep giving your labor for that which does not satisfy? This is what God says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. And then he clarifies and takes away the imagery that, that he formerly presented us with and gives us exactly what he's talking about. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked, whatever the wickedness is, let the wicked take his way 
And let the unrighteous man uh, forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that the Lord may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's bow our heads to pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to find our way into your grace by the way of your spirit. Lord, on this topic, um, there's so many undercurrents that really need to be addressed, and so I ask that your spirit would address those things. Help us to be a faithful church that's marked by our compassion and our brokenness for those who are broken. Help us never to think that our sins are better. Help us look to Christ who will forgive and make us clean. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.